rock bottom is a thing you know you hit when you're already way past it and you look back down you're like oh shit that was my bottom um you don't know it's your bottom in the moment i can fuck up and tell the truth about it and it feels better than fucking up and lying about it and i'd been living in such a web of lies for so much of my life that just the realization that oh when i screw up if i own up to it then you have a responsibility to change it and there are things that i need to do to move past this right like i was still kicked out of rehab i was still on on trial for you know something that could leave me in prison for 15 16 17 years like all those realities were still there but they were there whether i was lying about it or telling the truth about it the thing that made the difference is this full-on taking of responsibility for my own role and how fucked up my life had gotten and saying okay i'm I'm just going to commit to doing whatever I need to do to not fuck it up that badly anymore. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Hope you guys are having an amazing day today. I just want to say thank you to everybody who supported me during this amazing campaign for my brand new book, Mastering Adversity. We smashed the goal. We did great. It was such a beautiful experience, equally challenging. And I just want to say thank you to everybody that supported me and it's going to be epic. So thank you so much. We're also gearing up May 21st. We have the University of Adversity Summit. We announced our headliner speakers, Dan Fleischman, Amberly Lago, Danelle Delgado, just, just to name a few. We're going to be announcing a lot more coming up, but this is going to be great. And all the information to check that out is going to be the easiest way for you just to go to the link in my Instagram, link in the bio, or there'll also be a link in the show notes. Super easy and it's gonna be awesome. This is gonna be something that is gonna be life-changing. This is gonna be a weekend of personal transformation, growth, healing, all the things. I'm gonna be bringing back so many amazing guests that I've had on, some that haven't been part of the show yet, but will be, it's gonna be awesome. So I'm really, really excited to share that with you guys. Today's guest, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Such an awesome guy. We talked about all things addiction. You know, this is this is a story that is really close to me because, you know, I have people in my life who have suffered through addiction. I suffered through it as well. And it's always interesting to hear other people's perspective on addiction. And this was a really powerful conversation. Adi is an awesome dude and uh, we, we went deep. He's the CEO and founder of Ignited, and he just launched the first smart personalized adaptive recovery system. So it's an online system that helps people go through recovery and addiction, and it's really, it's really awesome. So um, if you guys do get value from this, please share this with a friend. If somebody's suffering an addiction or you wanna you know, maybe open your mind up to something different, this episode will be very helpful for you. We also are available on YouTube. So if you guys haven't checked it out there, go ahead and check that out. 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you decide to listen to it. And most importantly, enjoy the show. Dr. Adi Jaffe coming right up. Adi, welcome to University of Adversity, brother. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. Man, I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about, about addiction, because I personally dealt with it and I've had so many conversations around it. I have so many friends who have been addicted to things and relapsed. And I think it's one of the most important conversations to be had. So before we get into all that, how did you get into this line of work? How did you get into addictions in the first place? Um, well, you know, I got into the line of work by experimenting myself first. I'll call that my, uh, my field study portion of studying addiction. Mm. Um, started drinking when I was 14, smoking weed at 16, started into harder drugs at like 18, and by the time I was 20, 21, I was pretty heavily addicted to meth. Oh. Um, and when I say pretty heavily addicted, I was just smoking meth all day, every day. So um, that started in college and kept going. I, I rode that train for about five years, and that ended in a SWAT team arrest. I, uh, I was selling at that point. I had guns. I was selling a lot of other drugs. It was, it was a pretty, uh, pretty crazy scenario by the end. And... At that point, nobody thought I was going to be studying it or talking to other people about it. I was just trying to get my life together. And what ended up happening is that through my efforts at getting my life together, I couldn't get hired to get a job because now I've been to jail. Uh, so I went back to school. And in school, I found this passion. I mean, I didn't know I was going to study addiction, but I found this passion for working with people who had struggled the way that I had before understanding and learning why the neuroscience, the psychology, all the, all the nuance of why people become addicted, why they have a problem, actually why I got addicted. And then that translated to other people. And then I did, I started working with some people in research, like we're doing addiction with doing addiction research with people who had been addicted, homeless um, people down here in Long Beach. And I just loved it. I really, really loved it. I'd never been that motivated and worked that hard for anything in my life, probably. And once I found it, and that was 2004, I've just been running with it since, man. What do you think led to your addiction, your addictive patterns? Was it trauma? Um, so I didn't have severe trauma in my past. I, I had a bunch of little T trauma. Like my dad left us when I was about eight. But, you know, he was back within days. So it, it definitely rocked my world that my dad could even leave. Um, I was a latchkey kid. So, you know, I wasn't surrounded by my parents telling me they loved me, but it's like, I wasn't, there was no big T trauma in my past. Um, but what, uh, what I did have was I had a lot of social anxiety and perfectionism that that's been plaguing me for a very, very long time. And that first time when I had that drink, like I was always really awkward around girls. Um, I have this story I tell, it's, you see, that's even funny. I wasn't always awkward on girls. The first time I asked a girl out, like legitimately a girl I liked, and I asked her out, I was 13. I was 13 years old. She was like one of the most popular girls in our class. This is junior high, you know, the, the epitome of don't mess up your social world. Okay. Um, called her up one night, got the balls to do it, asked her out. The only thing it was talk about perfectionism. I was an idiot, right? She was dating the most popular guy in our class. So like, I asked her out. She obviously says no because she has a boyfriend. I'm just stupid. But the next day, everybody knew about it. 
everybody and all her friends for like two or three weeks. Every time I go to school, everybody was making fun of me and it hit hard. So I never, and when I say never, I mean, I never asked another girl out till I was in my mid twenties, like from 13 for 12 years, I didn't ask a girl out. So if I dated anybody, if I had a girlfriend, I had a few girlfriends along the way, they would have to ask me because I was so scared of making a fool of myself. So the first time somebody gave me alcohol, I was 14 years old. I was in a sleepaway camp. It tasted like ass, as I'm sure everybody knows. Warm vodka. It was nasty. It was just nasty. But 15 minutes later, I felt fine. Like, I wasn't worried what the guys thought about me. I wasn't worried what the girls thought about me. I started talking to a girl. I ended up kissing and, like, fooling around with her that night. It was like, oh, like the, the skies had parted. And I found this solution to not be anxious and nervous. So I just went with it. And I think... From that moment forward, I started the, the solution was to rely on something outside of myself to make me feel comfortable. And it works in the short term really well, which is why it creates problems for people. But what happened was I actually never worked on my self-esteem. I never worked on my ability to communicate with other people. So the wheels came off, you know, 10 years later. So interesting to find out where on the timeline, things went a bit squirrely. You know, so, yeah, it's so early and weird too. You know, dude, like- I can resonate with that so much as a teenager. You know, I remember I moved schools and I went from being a cool kid to a loser and I didn't know how to process it. And mm. I remember getting bullied. I moved across the country, got bullied. And then I've just recently discovered this man around like, where did all the, cause I'm the same. I got into alcohol, drugs, all of it. And I've been really curious as to like, where did that all start? You know, like, why did I feel the need to like pick up that drink? And it's the exact same. As soon as, you know, you cruise through your teens, you're kind of, something happens, you feel insecure. You're like, oh man, you got these feelings. And then all of a sudden alcohol comes in and you're like, wow, this is, this is good. This is like, I can be somebody else. Yeah. And then, you know, when I had alcohol, I just started drinking every weekend with my friends. And not only that, it's, this is another really important thing. So I, in my book, I talk about biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality are the factors that end up playing a part here. Mm-hmm. So also environmentally, now I was invited to the parties with the kids who drank because before I wasn't because I wasn't drinking. And so now you have this, a crew. And then when we got introduced, we got introduced in the same way. Some girl I really liked gave me a joint. And I wasn't going to say no to her because I liked her. So I, I didn't even feel anything the first time. But now I had a new crew. And when you feel weird and isolated and anxious, you just want your people. So it doesn't matter that your people are like, we were almost kind of proud of being the smart druggies. That's, that was my crew in high school. And we did school, we'd smoke weed behind this, you know, like we got in trouble, um, but they were my people. And for somebody who didn't feel like other people would even like him or was afraid of being, you know, it was, I wasn't really bullied per se, but I was made fun of for a few weeks in a row and it felt like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't handle this reality. So for that guy, having a crew and having people who liked him, called him to hang out, it was it's such a simple equation, but it just worked. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we're all so insecure at that age. It's just like, give me, give me the drinks. Love just all chugging two liter. I remember drinking those coolers and 
beers in our right. parents' wine cabinets. Just a bunch Get of whatever you can, kids. man. Yeah. And dude, what I find really interesting is like the aftermath of that. Right. So we're teenagers, you know, thank God I had hockey to, I had hockey as like an Avenue. Yeah. But what's really interesting is like, why did you, how did you end up with meth? Like what mm. was, what was that factor that led you there? So because we all come so close and it's like, we could all end up there. Right. We can all end up there. Yeah. And it was definitely a, an incremental move towards more and more serious stuff. So mm. alcohol, 14, weed at 16. By the time I was 18, 19 years old in college, I was drinking and smoking all day, every day. So literally, and you know, it's, I'm not proud of it. It's just what, what it was. I, I had a breakup my first semester, the end of my, sorry, the, the middle of my second semester in college, my high school girlfriend and I tried to make it work. It was such like, it's like a freaking American movie, what I'm talking about right now. Um, she met, so we're both freshmen at different universities. We're like trying to make it work and we're seeing each other on the weekend. She met a senior, uh, a freshman year, fell in love with him, started like fooling around and hanging out with him, then breaks up with me. And I go into this massive depression. Now, again, like think about the story I've just been telling. I'm the guy who is always scared that I won't fit in and that nobody will love me and that like I'll be made fun of. And then my girlfriend finds somebody cooler than me or whatever and, and dumps me for him. I, it, it sent me down a tailspin, man. I went through a, a clinical depression period of like three to six months. And um, then I was literally, I would start drinking and smoking weed when I would wake up. I would drink and smoke till two, three o'clock in the morning, pass out and, uh, and go back and like that would be the life. I was missing finals. I was missing midterm. I just wasn't doing anything. Um, in the middle of all that, I was looking for anything to numb out and feel not even okay. Just feel, try to feel good. So I tried harder drugs. I'd already done hallucinogens, but like Coke and ecstasy came in during that time and all that stuff. So now I'm like 19 years old and that makes it in. And then I moved out to LA. Um, and when I first moved out to LA, I actually kind of cleaned up, but I put that in air quotes because I just didn't know anybody that did drugs out here. So I drank more again. Um, and I was drinking, hanging out with people and, and doing that. And then as I met more and more people, I started getting, again, introduced to whatever drugs they were doing. So ecstasy played a major role. And then eventually, um, one of my friends just, I was having a hard time studying for finals. And she's like, hey, if you do a little bit of this stuff, you'll be able to study. And she was right. I mean, I, I was bad at school by that point. I wasn't going to classes. I wasn't submitting work. I was not doing well. But give me a bump of meth and I'd study for a day and a half. I taught myself accounting. I taught myself math. Um, it was like this magic drug. And I wasn't thinking about it at all long term. I'm just like, oh, this worked for finals. That's great. So then I used it for the next finals period, you know, three months later or whatever. It worked for that too. And I was like, oh, I can use this for midterms and for papers too. And within a year, I was using it every day. Because the thing about meth is once you start using it a couple of times a week, you can't stop in between because then you're just passed out on the bed and you can't get up. So it literally didn't take more than, I'd say, eight to 12 months for me to become like from introduced to it to using it every day. And I was already selling ecstasy and other drugs. So I had an unlimited supply and the next four years after that, I was just using all day, every day. Um, and 
I was down to 124 pounds. I weigh 166 right now. It's like 40 pounds lighter than I am right now. Like I could fit into my girlfriend's jeans back then because I was just like skin and bones. And again, right, I had my crew. I had guys selling drugs for me. I had my girlfriends. I had all this stuff. And so it it kind of felt normal from within the weird world that I was living in, but it was the farthest thing from normal the moment you walked outside of our group and looked at what we were doing. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, man. Yeah, of course, man. That's, um, I just want to acknowledge that because it's, that's the first thing is like acknowledging that. And so many people just aren't even ready to, to talk about that. So it's always great to hear. Well, we have this, story. we have this motto at ignited. It's F shame. Fuck shame. If swearing yeah, is allowed fuck, on here. Fuck it. F- fuck shame. And, um, <laughs> and so actually one of the things that I, I run my life by now is if I'm not talking about something because I'm afraid of how other people will perceive it, then I, I need to talk about it pretty immediately. Um, Cause that's how I, that's how I sort it out. Actually. That's how I figure out what I want to hold on to and what I don't is if I care enough about the thing, then I shouldn't hide from it. And this is part of my story. You know, it's like, again, I'm not telling it as a point of pride. I'm telling it because that's how I got to this moment. And if I didn't have that story, I wouldn't be able to help the people that I help today. Dude, that's, that's what shadow work is all about. This is, it's so yep. important to acknowledge it. Absolutely. Right. Cause like that has such an equal part of, of the puzzle of your life. Mm. Right. It's like, we can't yeah. ignore the dark. Yeah. You know, we have to acknowledge try. it. I know it's, it's like, this has been so, this is for me, this has been such a big lesson in my life. It's like, you know, we want to focus on the positive, do all the positive and that's great, but like, let's acknowledge the shit first. All right. It's like, you know, and that allows you to step into your power because you've acknowledged it. You're like, all right, thanks. You're not going to, you're not going to drive this, this bus, but you're there. And it's, it's part of why I'm here. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you got to understand, then you have to accept, and then you can, you can change whatever you want. But if you run away from those pieces of yourself that you're not really happy with right now, you think you've left them behind, but what you've really done is you've ignored a part of yourself and you're just kind of pretending to the world that it doesn't exist. And then it festers and it, it rears its ugly head when you least want it to. And it's always there and you always know it's there. And anybody listening right now, you know what I'm talking about, where if you're pretending really anything in your life, but if you're pretending something didn't happen, or if you're pretending um, you don't like something that you do or that you do like something that you don't. And it's like, if you're, if you're kind of acting for other people, there's that gnawing voice in the back of your head saying, you know, like, you're a liar. Yeah. That's bullshit. Like yeah. everybody's going to know. And it's always there. And when that voice is always there, you can't be the best version of yourself. You just can't. Cause you're always trying to appease all these different masters and, and change who you truly are. And that's, I think that's, that's one of the most disconcerting ways to live, in my opinion. When did when did things hit rock bottom for you? Did they? Is that why you changed? Or were you one of those people that were able to figure it out before shit got really bad? No, no, no it got pretty bad. I mean, I got so I, I had that SWAT team arrest, and it was like my right, fourth. Right. It was my fourth arrest, but the other ones were small. Like, look, 
rock bottoms are a funny concept, right? Because you can make anything your rock bottom. You just yeah. it's like the moment you figure it out. Rock bottom is a thing you know you hit when you're already way past it and you look back down, you're like, oh shit, that was my bottom. Um, you don't know it's your bottom in the moment. So I'd been arrested before. I'd spent a weekend in jail. I spent four or five days in jail. Um, none of those mattered. Actually, they were almost like a rite of passage. The first time I got arrested, I remember calling one of my guys who was running for me and I was like, hey, I need you to come bail me out. And then he did. And then I had a lawyer and I got off that case. And it was like, oh yeah, I've been to jail and I didn't rat anybody out and I'm good. You know, it was like, in the mentality of the world that I was living in back then, that was like literally like a rite of passage. Um, so the, but the next arrest was much more, more serious. I had, um, I had broken my leg in a motorcycle accident. That's when the cops discovered a bunch of drugs on me. So they were kind of really trying to pressure me to, uh, to turn somebody else in. I wouldn't do it. So then three months later they come and they did the SWAT arrest, but now I was looking at like 15, 16 years. They found a lot of drugs, had a gun next to me. Um, I was already, you know, I still had the running case from the accident where they found like a half a pound or something like that of cocaine on me. So it was, it was a bad deal. And <clears throat> it's not that that was my bottom. It's just that um, what happened was I knew I had to make some choices to not spend 17, 18 years, 15 years in prison and one of those choices was obvious and it was going to rehab. Uh, and so I did it, but it was harder than I imagined to quit. So I wasn't doing it because I wanted to get better. I was doing it because I wanted to stay out of prison for the rest of my life. But then I was still selling on the side and, and people were still calling me for deals and whatever I could get out, I ended up still using a little bit. And then I got caught in rehab and kicked out of that rehab. Oh, and shit. Yeah. And so it was like, I definitely did it. It was less of a bottom and more like I hit a bottom and then there were like speed bumps and I kept dragging my ass on speed bumps. And I'm like, oh shit, this isn't working out the way I want it to work out. And when I got kicked out of that rehab, I had this really like, I'm Jewish, so this is funny, but like I had like a come to Jesus moment and uh, where I was talking to my dad and I was lying to him like I had been for, well, I lied to him for years for a while, but now the slate got wiped clean and I was two months into this rehab, three months into this rehab and everything seemed like it was going great, but I'd been using for two months out of it. And I had to fess up. I had to own up to it and not lie to him and just own that I just got kicked out of rehab. And so when I did that, it was the opposite of my bottom. It was like the first moment of enlightenment. And I went, Oh shit, I can, I can fuck up and tell the truth about it. And it feels better than fucking up and lying about it. And I've been living in such a web of lies for so much of my life that just the realization that, Oh, when I screw up, if I own up to it, then yeah, I have a responsibility to change it. And there are things that I need to do to move past this, right? Like I was still kicked out of rehab. I was still on, on trial for, you know, something that could leave me in prison for 15, 16, 17 years. Like all those realities were still there, but they were there whether I was lying about it or telling the truth about it. The difference was how I felt. And so by telling my dad the truth, I went, shit, you know what? Because he asked me at the end when I told him, he started screaming at me. And like, he was not a screamer normally, but he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're staring like decades in prison. You just threw away three months in a rehab that would help you stay out of prison. What, like, what is 
why you're so crazy and stupid. What are you doing? And then he ended it with, what do you want me to do now? And it, it was the first time it dawned on me. I'm like, you can't do anything. This isn't not, this is not your thing to fix. I got to figure this out. And so I spent the next two weeks or so kind of homeless, sleeping on girlfriends, couches and in their beds or whatever, but like just having no home. Cause I got evicted from my apartment and trying to figure out my next move. And my next move was definitely another rehab, but because now I was invested, I put the time in to find it. I sought it out. I went to interview for it high as hell, but I went to interview for it myself. Um, I was much more committed the second time around and I got it. Like I, I, I remember coming into that second rehab and I was like, shit, I got to make this work because I am staring 15 to 18 to 20 years in prison. And if I don't show up to court clean and sober and, um, and have my shit together, that judge, he's not going to care. He's just going to toss me away. And that was a big realization. So the, the bottom was a longer one, maybe than expected. It wasn't a super long one, but it was a longer one than expected. Um, the thing that made the difference is this full on taking of responsibility for my own role and how fucked up my life had gotten and saying, okay, I'm, I'm just going to commit to doing whatever I need to do to not fuck it up that badly anymore. Wow. Yeah. So what were some of the, the tangible things that you did that allowed mm. you to, to get out of that? Because man, there's, there's that period of, you know, when you quit drinking or drugs or whatever, it's like, it's fucking hard. And it is hard. So those little steps, those little things, those little behaviors that kind of get us out. What was that for you? Yeah. The great, really, really great question. So first of all, I had to really let go of my ego. Um, that was probably the hardest one, right? I'd been a drug dealer. I was making like three to 400,000 a year. I was always walking around with money and, you know, I had girls, I had guys running for me so I could just, you know, I was in a place in my life where I could pick up the phone or text somebody and almost get anything I wanted whenever I wanted it. And there's a lot of ego in that. Um, letting go of that was hard. It was. And I was still trying to run my life that way in that first rehab. And then the second one, I had to let it go. And now I didn't really know what that meant. And I, I couldn't have said that to you back then. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Like when I screwed up in that second rehab, um, I would get, there's, there'd be a consequence. There'd be something I'd have to do. The original version of me would have been like, fuck you, I'm not doing that this version of me sat down and if they made me write 10,000 words on why I think I'm better than other people, it's not that I thought that the task meant much. It's not that I got the point of it. It's that I said, I'm going to do this so that I get to stay here so that I can do what I wanted to. But in the meantime, it taught me, Hey, shit's going to suck sometimes. And you're just going to have to suck it up and do what you need to do to get past that moment. So I would sit down and do that or, if I didn't clean right and I would have to wash the floors again and whatever, I would go wash the floors again instead of putting up a fight. One time I invited um, a friend, I saw him as a friend, to one of our barbecues, which just so happened that that friend used to run drugs for me. Um, and he came with his girlfriend. He's still actively using. And for all, I don't know if he had drugs on him then, but somebody found out. I think I wasn't even that shy about it. I just told people, yeah, I know him from, you know, he used to run drugs for me. And so I got in a bunch of shit for doing that. 
these moments of letting go of my ego allowed me to sit there, take criticism and, and take um, real stock of what I was doing and, and listen and walk through it. So that's something I really embody now in the work we do with people. I, I think we do it in a smarter way at Ignited. So I don't lead with a stick, but there's, we practice radical transparency with our people. And, and sometimes you have to have a mirror held up to your head and say like, this is what you're doing right now. Just, is this what you want to be doing? Or is this what you're doing? Cause you're trying to prove something to somebody. And, um, and I was definitely, again, right. Talk back to that 13 year old kid who got rejected. Now as a drug dealer, I was living the dream life. I had the money, I had the girls, I had all the stuff. So that was the ego of that poor wounded 13 year old saying I made it. And when that all got stripped, I had to really find the, the inside guy that was going to put in the work that was going to find himself that was going to have the tough conversations and do the hard things to get where he wanted to, instead of finding the shortcut, which is what I've been doing for a very long time. Well, yeah, that would make it extra challenging because you're getting so much validation for being that guy, right? You're doing these things, you're getting the girls, the women, all the things. So it feels like it's the right thing because you're getting rewarded in reality, but it's, it's soul. It's sucking away your soul at the same time, which is so fucked because the world that you're living is showing you all these things but really it's, it's, it's draining you as well. It's like, yeah, I knew it at the time though. I, I yeah. would always say that I'm a, I was a big Nine Inch Nails fan back then. I'm still a big Nine Inch Nails fan, but um, I would say that I'm a, I was the king of shit. I had my own little kingdom. It, it kind of sucked and it was kind of on the outskirts of the universe. And if you told anybody else about what my kingdom was, they'd be like, yo, your life sucks and it's fucked. Um, but within it, it felt great, right? We'd be up at three o'clock in the morning, pretending to make music and get really fucked up in my studio. And I'd be DJing and like, you know, hooking up with a girl. And then we'd go to the strip club and all the strippers would come back to party with us. Like in a very dark drug movie, look at what's happening in my party life. And within that universe, I was the king of that. But... Again, I remember I said it when we started, the world just got smaller and smaller and smaller. And so now there were, I don't know, we had 400 customers and like 12 people in my posse. So like to those people, I was great. To everybody else in the world, I was a piece of shit. And so you get really dependent on those people and just making sure that you have them around. But I always had them around Mm. because I hated quiet, hated quiet because when everybody else would be gone, there'd be this voice in the back of my head, like, what the fuck are you doing, man? What is this? Where, how'd you end up here? I remember I was in a conversation. I went to college. I went to UCLA and I remember I had this conversation with my dealer. So the guy one level above me in the dealing game and we were just talking and I mentioned something about the fact that I went to UCLA. He was like, Oh, you went to college. And, and there was this little moment that I'm like, wait, how did I end up here? Like, how did I do that and then end up here? It was a very surreal moment. And in my recording studio, I had these spotlights at, the, at each end. One of them was blue and the other one was uh, red. And so if you, the studio was all painted black. So if at night, 
and the doors would be closed and it'd be pitch black in that except for the two spotlights and uh it was a very kind of dramatic setting and i remember sitting under the red light one day and literally just i was by myself i was still probably high because i was never sober but i was just thinking to myself like i have no idea how my life went from where it was five six seven eight nine years ago to where i am right now and it wasn't a good thing it was i was very distraught that I got myself to that place. Wow, brother. So, okay, let's, let's dive in to recovery and all of that. So, um, I really love how, what you're up to and how, how it's different. So first of all, I just want to ask the question. So why is the traditional recovery dead? Why is the traditional recovery model dead? And why do we need to look at different things and how do we look at different things? Um, yeah. So, I'll, I mean, I'll just use a different word than dead. It's just outdated and needs to be updated. Um, it needs an overhaul. Right. And mm. look, the first, the first reason is simple. It's been around for about 80 to 90 years. Um, right around the same time the ballpoint pen was invented. And I would argue that it's even based on principles from about 50 to 100 years before that, which is when the telegraph was invented. And I'm using those historical points to make a to make a, my point clear. And that is nobody here listening right now uses a telegraph. And it led to amazing advances like the phone and, you know, later on, you know, the internet and Wi-Fi and all this wonderful stuff. Great. Uh, we don't use it anymore. And the ballpoint pen is nice. But there's nothing innovative about it nowadays. And I think we need to completely rethink our current system. And the the reason I say that emphatically is it's failing the people that it needs to help. Somebody was just really mad at me today on uh, Instagram because we have an ad that runs for my book. And it calls into question. It doesn't call into question. It calls bullshit on the once an addict, always an addict mentality. I think that is one of the most damaging bullshit things you can tell too, somebody brother. who struggles with addiction. It's for, first of all, if anybody's listening and needs to hear this, it's bullshit. It's not true. Mm. Um, you need to get rid of that notion right away. And by the way, while you're at it, get rid of that whole addict label, period. Don't call somebody an addict in the same way you don't call somebody who had cancer a cancer patient. Like you don't look at them and go, you're a cancer patient for the rest of your life. That's upsetting. That's sad. Like you don't look at somebody who has diabetes and every day you're like, oh, you're a diabetic. You got to get up in front of everybody and tell them you're a diabetic. No, fuck you. So once an addict, always an addict is bullshit and we need to get rid of that. And the other piece that a lot of people have more of a hard time is the powerlessness concept. Um, we're not powerless. We may not be all powerful. We're not gods, but there's a big gray area between I have all the power in the universe and I control anything I want and I'm completely powerless. And what we need to get people to understand is they're not powerless. They're actually incredibly empowered. And one of the things they're empowered about is they get to make choices about how they want to get better. So those are two big pieces. And then the next one, I have a book about this one uh, called The Abstinence Myth. We need to update the idea that anybody who struggles with any addiction must commit to quitting or they're not serious about or will not get better. Um, First of all, I'm not sober for anybody listening right now. I'm a social drinker. My wife and I have also talked about we do MDMA a handful of times a year. I've done mushrooms here and there. Um, that's kind of the extent of my drug use. But 
I'm not sober. I haven't been sober in 15 years. I was heavily addicted to meth. So you can't tell me the bullshit about like, well, maybe you were never an addict. That's great. But nobody would have said that back then when I was heavily addicted to meth. And so you can have a really serious drug or alcohol problem, find ways to fix it, and then live a very normal life later. And we have to get people to understand that because we're losing more and more people every year. There's somewhere between 30 and 60, 70 million people who struggle with alcohol and drugs in this country every single year, and more and more of them are dying. And part of the reason is not just the drugs and the alcohol, it's the crappy system we've set up to help them. What about- Sorry, that was a rant. No, that was good, man. That was, that was great. I mean, so much truth to that. Yeah, that's going to ruffle some feathers, but that's, that's good. I, lo- I love- you, that's a cool. different we're, perspective. We're losing millions of people a year. I'm okay ruffling feathers. Dude, 100%, mind. man. 100%. This is such a complex, complex, you know, situation. And there, there's so many people that, that live in that box forever. And I agree with you, man. I don't believe that we should be constantly re- uh, affirming that we're an addict. Like, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, this, by the way, there's really good research now. So I said this in my TED talk like seven or eight years ago, but since then there's been research that comes out and says, look, calling people an addict stigmatizes them and shames them. When people are stigmatized and shamed, they're less likely to seek help. I did research on this when I was at UCLA and it's 50 to 60% of people don't want the label. Um, Less likely to seek help, less likely to engage with the help long-term and less likely to have positive outcomes. So whether you believe people are quote unquote addicts or not, if you know that calling them that and making them say that about themselves regularly gives them poor outcomes, stop doing it. You know, it's like, it's not, I don't care how you feel about it. If you're really serious about trying to help people, just stop mm-hmm. doing it. Cause we now know that it hurts their chances of success and even powerlessness. Like, look, I'll say this to all 12 step people in the world. You want, here's how I'm going to prove to you that alcohol is not, uh, you're not powerless over alcohol. Every day that you make a choice to go to a meeting, do a step, talk to your sponsor, talk to a sponsee, do your gratitude list, whatever, you are exerting power over alcohol every day. If alcohol was so powerful and, and had ultimate power over you, wouldn't it continue finding a way into your life? Um, and again, I'm not saying you're God. I'm not saying you are the end all be all of all power in the universe. I'm just saying, get rid of that stupid word. You're not powerless. Um, You can empower yourself using tools. And for, by the way, for a lot of people, the tool they've chosen to empower themselves with is 12 step and AA and all that kind of stuff. That's great. I don't find whatever it is that works for you. I'm just saying, let's, like I said, we need to update the language quite a bit. Have you experienced with, have you done ayahuasca yet or anything like that? I haven't. And, um, so first of all, I went through a very deep hallucinogens time when I was using actively. So I, I literally used to do acid every Friday. I had a lot of acid, so I would just do them. I did mushrooms on a regular basis. Uh, so I've had very deep hallucinogenic experiences really since the age of 17 or so. Um, but it's funny. The reason I haven't done Aya is, is simple. I've, I have a very structured deep-rooted and well-practiced world around me. And I've, I've played with myself before about the notion of like, do I want to introduce something into it that has the potential 
to give me a different view of where I am right now and send me in a different direction. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Um, yeah. But I'm sort of I'm sort of on a deep mission right now, and I don't really want to be de- derailed. And because I know the power of hallucinogens, I know full well that I could go into an experience like that and have an awakening that I'm not even aware of in this moment. And I think I want to finish the path that I'm on right now a little bit more before I open myself up to that. So this is, this is a great um, part I wanted to talk to you about and around this exact thing. So I'm glad you yeah. kind of brought that up. This is like a personal question about a friend of mine. And I'm just curious to see what your opinion is. Please. You know, he was highly addicted to meth, highly, yeah. like for a while. He went, he went to AA, cleaned up for 10 months, went, did Aya, had a powerful experience, you know, went deep with the medicine, but really struggled after and then relapsed. So he's at the point now where he's like, I don't even like, he doesn't want to look at psychedelics because it, I think it opened up like you said, a different, almost like it went deeper, deep enough, pulled out some shit, showed him stuff. And he didn't have the tools yeah. to, to, to apply that yeah. in, in the reality of integration and all that. So it like hit him on a spin. And now he's kind of like, he's, he's like, just wants to go back to normal recovery. So I'm just curious as to like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you, so a couple of things. First of all, yeah. first of all, I totally get it. Right. Um, again, hallucinogens are, they're serious drugs, man. And they're partially serious because you don't control what you, what experience you're going to have. And so I've had, you know, the things most people call bad trips were some of the most illuminating experiences I've ever had in my life, primarily looking at aspects of myself that I didn't like that much and that I haven't liked in a long time, but I needed to do something about. So that's number one. Um, number two, here's my issue with the current recovery system at large. Obviously, there are exceptions. But for the most part, what people say is, hey, if you're going through a hard time, just don't use go to another meeting. And in that meeting, you talk about the fact that you're having a hard time and you feel like you have camaraderie and that's great. But some of the reasons you're having a hard time need very focused work. Now, I'll just, you asked about trauma in my past. So again, biology, psychology, environment, spirituality. We all have biological inclinations. I think a lot of the work we'll talk about here in a second can overwrite those, but that doesn't change the fact that you have them. So you can be prone to anxiety. You can be prone to depression. You can be prone to mood swings. You can be prone to impulsivity and risk-taking. You can you can have a biological system that processes alcohol or drugs um, different than other people. And so if you process them differently, you may be more sensitive or less sensitive to them. That's biology. Now, meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, a lot of the practice, psychological practices have actually been shown to be protective. Good sleep, good nutrition can actually be protective against dangerous biology, but it's, it can still be there as noise. Hmm. Then there's psychology, big T and little t trauma. Um, Big T obviously matters a ton, right? Rape, sexual assault, physical assault, uh, emotional abuse, being, uh, being, you know, moving a ton, uh, having massive relationship issues with your parents, um, living in a war-torn region. I mean, there, there's a million different things that can be big T trauma, but repeated little T trauma 
um, can also cause problems. So that's psychology. That changes the way you look at the world, the attachment you have to other people. It changes how you perceive yourself. Then you have the environment. We mentioned it already. Almost all my drug use was a combination of psychology with environment. The environment presented an opportunity that perfectly matched with my needs psychologically, and I used it. Your environment matters, and most people underestimate how much it matters. And then eventually spirituality. Um, and spirituality means not necessarily godliness and religion. It means do you have a purpose? Do you know why you're here? Do you have a striving, a motivation, a, a force that is pushing you? Do you believe in something bigger than yourself? Not necessarily even an entity bigger than yourself. Do you believe in anything that is bigger than you? It could be the universe. It could be whatever you want. I don't need it to be God. Um, but do you see yourself as part of something bigger? Because if you see yourself as part of something bigger, it gives you this sense of purpose. Long story short for your friend, um, my guess is that experience, the ayahuasca experience, exposed to him some gaps, some chasms that he has in biology, psychology, environment, or spirituality, and then gave him no tools to handle them. And what AA and 12-step programs do that is really nice is they give you a supportive environment where you can talk about those fears and other people will laugh when you thought they were going to shame you or uh, they'll say, oh, I have that too. Or, you know, they'll say, oh, well, just you're crazy, but it's okay. Just come to another meeting. And that's all nice. Social environmental support is really important. But there's probably stuff he actually has to address. There are probably things he actually has to repair and like it or not, AA does not give you the framework for that. Most sponsors are not psychologically trained. They don't know what to do. So all they know how to do is the same things that were performed for them. And if that works for you, that's great. But if it doesn't, it can actually even be dangerous. And so you can say this to your friend, but even within the 12 steps, here's what I found. And I was in AA for three years. I have many, many friends who are in 12-step programs. We have clients at Ignited that are in 12-step programs. I have nothing against 12-step programs. But the people I know with the best success in AA are the people who also use other things at the same time. So they go to a therapist. Maybe they need a psychiatrist. Maybe they don't. Maybe they found yoga or another version of meditation or, you know what I'm saying? Like, they have the base social group because that's the biggest social group that exists in addiction. And then they implement the tools they really need to repair themselves through other channels. So I understand what your friend went through because AA instills a lot of fear in you, man. And that fear is if you leave us, you will die alone on the side of a road. And we don't want to die. We're scared. And so when he has a safe solution, it feels to him like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm curious to find out what else is out there in the world, but I don't want to die. So I'll stay with AA. So it doesn't have to be an either or solution for him, but it could easily be, okay, but let's just talk simply. What came up for you around ayahuasca that was scary? And if you have that conversation now go, okay, well, so your childhood and, and what you feel about yourself and your inability to talk about emotions. Great. Let's find some solutions that help you with that. Keep going to AA. That's great but find other solutions that help you specifically address the things that scare you and you will grow as a human being, not just stay sober longer. Thank you for that. I, you know, he, he went to rehab now that I'm like, I said, AA, but he went to rehab. So I'm guessing the rehab is, was like this, that kind of, 80, right? 85%, 85% of them. See, it's yeah. so important. Cause you know, I talk about ayahuasca quite a bit on here and, you know, I had a journey myself recently and it was so powerful. 
for me, we're like, but the, the most important thing that I think people miss when they do this work is the integration. Dude, you're open to some worlds there that you don't know. The English language can't always quantify what you just yeah. saw. Like, sure. it's like you, it's a feeling there's metaphors, there's insight. It's like, holy fuck. And sometimes you just need people to be around and listen. And, uh, and like, I see you, man. I, you know, I hear you, you know? And I think that if you don't have that for a while, if you don't have a good environment, if you don't, I think what you said about environment is so important. Yeah. If you go on an experience like that, where you are open and you, you're, and then you go right back into like a city, it's the mm. worst thing you can do. I, I was lucky enough to be in Costa Rica where I just slowly eased into the jungle and the beach. And it was like, okay, when things come up, I'm like, where can I connect with nature? And that mm. is so important. Right. And I, I love that you, you talked about environment because I don't think people really understand how important that is for everything. Sure. I mean, and let's, you know, if we can just be philosophical here for a second, I don't know if he had ever done hallucinogens before, your friend. Um, do you know if he had before? I'm not sure. Maybe little, maybe not not a lot. You know, there's an experience that happens to people if they're not familiar with hallucinogens at all. And, and that is you've lived your whole life being fed a script by your parents and your friends and your teachers and the people around you and TV and all the stuff that you've consumed your entire life. And that script is here's what life is. Now, we all think we have the real version of that in our heads. We think we know what life is. Yeah. We don't know shit. All we know is what other people told us life is. And then we look and we, because our brain is very good at paying attention to what it needs to pay attention to. It's called confirmation bias or expectancy bias. There are a lot of different names for it, but you see what you want to see in the world. And when people told you what to expect, you primarily see that. All you have to do is just think about your life up until now. And your parents told you the life was a certain way and you totally bought in until you were like 12 or 13. And then friends started telling you different shit. You're like, oh my God, my parents were wrong. My friends are more right. And you started creating your own version of this. Now that's great. And then the first time you touch a hallucinogen, your brain goes, oh yeah, you think you know what the world is? Fuck you, check this out. Yeah. And then like you're staring at a wall and you go, I know I'm staring at a wall that has dry paint on it, but the paint is moving. What the hell? Or you close your eyes and there's like a light show that sparkles to noise in your head and you have like synesthesia and you, you kind of, all your senses get integrated in a way they never have before. You start having thoughts about things you never thought of before in, your, in the universe and you feel like you understand them at a deep level because your brain is, it's working differently than it ever has before. It's integrating information in a very different way than it has before. You'll sit down and talk to somebody you could never imagine having a conversation with, but under the influence of a hallucinogen, you understand them and you see it from their point of view and you feel like you're a drone floating over yourself. It's like, it's a pretty crazy experience. Hmm. That's why people originally used it in research, all of these hallucinogens as a way to like simulate schizophrenia because they were saying like these people are having a completely different psychological psychic experience, right? If you're not ready for something like that, it can be too much because you went from, I know what the world is like to, I can't even trust what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm believing when I'm sober, because 
I might think this is true right now, but that paint that is dry in front of my face right now, it was dripping last night. So what's happening? Or the lights were flickering and changing colors when I know they weren't, right? Like in a very visceral way, your world, your universe changes when you first try hallucinogen. If it has a real, like if you try a big enough dose and it has a real impact on you. That's, that's not a simple thing to integrate. No. And if you only, I did it when I was 16, 17, you know, so you're in that place of exploration and I want the world to be different. I'm looking for it. But if you're like in your thirties or forties and, and you, you've been running on autopilot for 30, 40 years, it is, it can be really jarring um, because to go from a place where I know what the world is and, and the rules and what means what and, and what I'm supposed to do tomorrow and, and what is the meaning of life, to go from that to a free-for-all, you know what, my hands are up in the air, I just don't know what's real and what's not anymore, and have all this deep insight. You talked about integration. You're so right. To walk from that into a world where somebody's like, um, hey, can you please move in line? Uh, there's people behind you and you're buying bread and just give me the money. And so you can get out of here and get in your car. Wait, what? None of this means anything. Why am I even, why do I care about this? That's a, that's a very jarring experience to have. Yeah. Well said, man. So tell us about Ignited. I know we're running out of time. Time flew. I want to know, I want to make sure that everybody knows about it and you know, how they can find, how they can check it out and work with you. Yeah. Thanks, man. And by the way, give, give our stuff to your, your friend and we're pretty, uh, we're pretty low risk. Uh, and what I mean by that is Ignited was created to take after now 15 years that I've been doing this work, everything that I know works for people who struggle with addiction and have a very low threshold of requirements from the person you know, that's coming in for help. So we don't ask you to quit. We don't ask you to call yourself any specific name. We just ask you to show up and be honest and transparent in the work that you do with us. And we've created a very supportive program, but also a very supportive community where you can really come in and talk about anything that's going on for you. And then either myself or other coaches or the people in the community will help you find a set of tools that can help you deal with whatever it is you're struggling with right now. Um, so What's nice about Ignited and the reason it's called Ignited is I don't look at the alcohol or the drugs as the problem. I look at the alcohol and the drugs as the things that allowed you to find a solution that worked for a certain period of time, but doesn't work anymore. And what I say is like, forget that for a second. Let's focus on where you are in life and let's get you to the point. The program is called the Ignited Hero Program. Let's get you to the point where you feel full of purpose, where you feel ignited and you feel happy and motivated and excited for life. Um, it's been really, really powerful. We've done it for the last three or so years. We've had about like, I don't know, about 800 or close to a thousand people participate in it. Wow. Um, life changing experiences. One of the, there's a woman training to be a coach right now who was one of those sort of like hopeless, uh, hopelessly addicted to meth people out there in the world before she came to us, 20 years of meth addiction. Wow. Nothing was working um, and lost her children. Like it was pretty much a nightmare. She's now training to be a coach with us. She's been sober for a couple of years and a lot of stories like that, that, that are just beautiful to watch. And then a lot of people who struggle with alcohol 
and have 40, 50, 60% reduction in their drinking within a month and are reporting that they're happy. So our purpose is not to get you to quit drugs. It's to get ignited and to, to find yourself. And my belief and what we've seen in the data up until now is if you do the work and you get there, the drugs and the alcohol become less important anyway, mm. because you don't need them to cover anything up. And so a quick way for people to get introduced is my book, The Abstinence Myth. Love you it. can literally look up theabstinencemyth.com and it'll take you there. But we're also now offering two-week free trials to anybody listening right now who wants to try the Ignited program on $0, check us out, see what we're about. And if it feels to you like it's taking you on the right track, you get to stick around. Hmm. Brother, thank you so much, man. I really, really appreciate it. This is such a great conversation. I could talk to you for hours about this. Um, Yeah, we'll do a repeat someday. Yeah, man. We'll uh, absolutely... We'll have everything in the show notes clear for everybody to find you and learn more about it. I think this is just such amazing work and yeah, man, I really, uh, really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on and, uh, you know, providing a platform. Absolutely. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Go check out Dr. Jaffe. All his information is in the show notes. You can also check him out on Instagram Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this, guys. That way you don't have to think about it. It's automatically downloaded wherever you're at. We're also available on YouTube, so go check us out there. And if you are interested in changing your life, University of Adversity Summit, May 21st, is going to be amazing. May 21st to the 3rd. Check it out. All information on that is in the show notes. More information to come as well about that. And I'm looking really forward to uh, sharing that with you guys. Have an amazing day, everybody. Catch you next time.